Welcome to Women in Science, a podcast series where we interview some inspiring women who are breaking barriers in their fields and making remarkable contributions to research. We chat to them about the science they love and their unique journey as scientists. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and in this episode, we meet Professor Helena Rubenstein Dunlop, internationally recognised physicist and a pioneer in laser physics. Helena's determination during her career has meant that she's never taken no for an answer. Welcome to another episode of our Women in Science podcast. I'm delighted to be joined here today by Helena Rubenstein Dunlop. Helena, welcome. Thank you very much. So we always like to start these episodes with asking you a little bit about your background. Where did you come from and how did you get to where you are today? So I am a Polish-born Jew of Jewish origin and I spent my very young years in Poland Then I moved as a political refugee to Sweden and became Swedish citizen and Sweden as my home country, as I count myself to be now. And then after 20 years in Sweden, I came for one single year to Australia. And here I am, 30 years later. Uh, So I had my uh, university education and PhD in Sweden my first research group there, my first competitive grants and all sorts of stuff that tells you that I was doing okay there and then I came here. So I have lots of questions to follow up there. I think the first thing I'm going to ask is I know that you work on lasers and as a non-physics person, I think that sounds very impressive. How on earth did you come into this field? Well, you know, I did my PhD in the years very close to when the laser was discovered, not many years after the laser was discovered. So my lab in Sweden, where I was doing my PhD, was the first in Sweden to acquire first laser. And so when the laser came, it was just so exciting because we were able to do things that you only were dreaming about before. And these became so easy when using this new technology. So we were just running to use more and more lasers to discover how nature functions. So so that's how I got into lasers. So I didn't start my PhD doing laser physics, but I finished it doing it. It was very exciting times because You might know that the discovery of laser, invention of laser, was very unusual, as in that very shortly after the discovery, the invention, it was used in applications, especially in medical applications. It wouldn't be possible today with all the medical trials you have to do before you use it on people, but at that stage, it was possible. So laser was used for retinal detachment, And it was so fascinating that we all sort of thought that if we can do anything with laser, that would be good fun. So That sounds like a good motivation for a career. It sounds like fun, so I'm going to do it. That's exactly right. (laughs) That's my motto. (laughs) And what triggered then your move to Australia from Sweden? I was together. My partner was also at the university and was the university professor at Chalmers University of Technology. And he is from this side of the world. Mm. 
And so after many years overseas, he felt that it would be nice to come back home and see how it is to be at home. And he was actually headhunted for a professorial position here at UQ. And so he was very keen on that. We decided to give it a go. And according to the employment rules at Swedish universities, you can take leave of absence for a couple of years, as long as you promise to come back. So I took leave of absence and I thought, oh, well, let's follow his dream for a while and see how we go. And I had no intentions of staying here, but here I am. Mm. And I think that's something that a lot of women in science have to face where you know, we're going after our careers, but we also have family, we have partners who have their own careers. As two successful people in this field, how do you and your partner juggle that sort of career balance between, especially at that sort of, in those formative years, between what's good for their career, what's good for your career? Well, I think that it's a question of compromises that you have to consider. And so I suppose that the thinking within our relationship at that stage was he did stay in Sweden for me for several years. So maybe it's my turn to return the favor and see how it is to live in his part of the world. Although it was a compromise because I was really, in many ways, coming here without proper appointment. Mm. We were first couple where both of us got some sort of positions here, but my position was not comparable with what he got in that he basically said that he couldn't come if there was nothing for me. Mm. So I used to say that I was best paid housewife in, <laughs> in the whole wide world when I first came here. So I had a research fellowship from Central University from the vice chancellor by vice chancellor and by a little bit by engineering. But then you progressed very rapidly in your career. Can you tell me a little bit about your first successful ARC grant? I actually applied for my first grant with ARC before I came here because the Department of Physics then asked me to do it and I had no idea what I was doing because, you know, as you know, every country uh, has there are its own rules, how you best apply for grants and what is reasonable budget and all the rest of it. And nobody could give me any explanation how or instructions how to apply for a grant. I don't think that's changed all these years later. In any case, so I was sitting in Sweden and doing my research with my research group, which was very, very successful. And we had heaps of external funding, which was very competitive, and I knew how to do that. So then I applied the same rules for the grant with ARC. And I was alone on that grant, and that was 30 years ago. And uh, the grants were quite fresh at that stage. And so I put the grant in for my research that I was trying to continue here based on what I have done in Sweden. And then we moved, and uh, all of a sudden I got this message saying you you have an interview with Australian Research Council. You know, you are interviewed for your grant. And I thought, oh, I better ask somebody what that is about. Nobody would tell me what it was about because nobody knew at that stage. So I went for my interview, and there's a room full of men, of course. So uh, they asked me about my science, and I explained that. And then they said, well... 
But you really, you apply for so much funding. Can you explain what this funding is for? And I explained what the funding was for, that I was building a group and, you know, I needed this, that and the other thing. And it was over a million dollars. And in those days, over a million dollars was just like, dream on, dream on, lady. That's not going to happen. Anyway, I was unaware of it. So I said, that's what the needs were. And they said, well, that sounds like good plan, but the opposition is only for three years and it, it's second part of first year already. What are the plans for later? And I said, oh, I have no idea. I don't have any position. That's what I got. And so I didn't get the grant. So the following year, I applied for another grant. But this time I applied with a very well-known professor in mechanical engineering, Professor Ray Stalker. And that was quite interesting because he knocked one day on my door and he said, I hear you are a laser physicist. And I said, yep, yep, that's right. And he said, well, I want to do this and that and the other thing for hypervelocity flows. And I said, oh, sure, I can do it. That was to do holographic interferometry, which I have never done in my life. But, you know, I was thinking, ah, oh, shit, I can do this. That's not a problem. And so we started to discuss the project and we didn't have any equipment. I didn't have any lasers. So for, for that project, you needed quite sophisticated laser equipment, which existed in Canberra in a group which was doing similar research to what we were planning. And so first of all, what we did was to go for a trip to Canberra where he was trying to convince his colleagues to give me all the equipment I needed because I was super duper and I would do it better than they did. And, of course, they weren't very keen on that. Yeah, so, how did that um, go down with them? <laughs> no, it didn't go very well. But we became very good collaborators, oh, very good friends. Anyway, so we came back here and I was doing my other projects in physics and we decided to apply for another grant. And this time we also got to interview, but this time I wasn't alone and I also applied with Ray for a little bit smaller budget. So we got to the interview and we both were there and we got all the possible and impossible questions. And one of the questions was, so if this is such an important project for University of Queensland, what is the university doing for you? And Ray didn't want to answer the question. So I said, well, I'm, I'm not quite sure. But what would you like the university to do? And they said, you know, if they believe it's important, they should be committing to it in one way or another. I said, so you need commitment from the university. And they said, yes. So I said, okay, well, give me a few minutes. I'll give you the commitment then. So I rushed out of there. Ray tried to stop me, but he was waiting for me outside the door. And I went to then Dean of Engineering, who was Professor Paul Greenfield. And I rushed into his office and I, the secretary was sitting there and I said, well, I have to see Professor Greenfield right now. And I walked in and I told him what I was doing. And I said, so what's your commitment? This is my project. What would you give me? On the and, spot. On the spot. And he said, uh, what do you need? And I said, um, I don't know. What about a laser? You know? And how much would that be? I told him how much it was. It was quite a lot of money. He said, so what do you want me to do now? And I said, well, you could give me a letter that says that that's the commitment of the university. He says, okay, do you need it now? 
I said, yep, I need it now. It wouldn't happen today. No. But 30 years ago, the situation was slightly different. So I got the letter. So then I rushed out of his office back to the interview room, and I said to the people sitting there waiting for the interviews, can I just break in for a little minute? And um, Ray said, you can't do this. Oh, yes, I can, I can. I rushed into the room, and I said, well, I've got the letter. Is that what you need? And did their jaws just drop? I tell you the truth, I don't remember. I think that I was so determined that I was doing what I was doing that I, whatever they did didn't matter to me. <laughs> You'd I, given I was, them the letter. Yeah, I'd just give them a letter and see what, you know, then it's your action, you know. And so um, subsequently, not, not long after, I found out that we got the grant. So that was my first ARC grant. That is the most amazing story. And I think that that speaks volumes as to your determination and your willingness when somebody throws down the gauntlet to really answer the challenge. Do you find that that you've carried that attitude throughout your career, to the, the determination and the drive, and has that been important? Yes. I, I never thought about it, but now when I look back, I think that it's right, that I just don't give up. Mm. And as I said, as an answer to your previous question, I think that I love having fun. And I love doing what I love doing. Mm. And I would, you know, do anything to be able to do that. So there is a determination in it and there is a wish of going forward. Mm. But that passion for science is at the core of your determination. Yep. That's amazing. I think if any of us tried that today with a grant, perhaps we wouldn't have the same outcome, but I'm so glad that it worked out for you. So as a, as a woman in, in physics in an area that is classically underrepresented by females, how have you dealt with that and have you noticed either implicit or explicit bias against you? I uh, haven't noticed it. Sorry, I was blind to it for majority of my career. I used to think that, you know, I had no barriers. I was just running the fastest I could and... Basically, I think today that I had fantastic blinkers mm. where I was neglecting anything that was against me, whether it was unconscious bias or harassment or whatever it was. And if I were asked whether I have experienced it, I would have said till about 10 years ago, I would have said, no, nothing, <laughs> never. But it's actually quite a beautiful white lie. I have experienced a lot of it, and I was fighting against it in my way, and I probably won in some cases, but it took to getting to quite late age in my life to actually realize what I went through. Mm. And I think that's what a lot of women realize in retrospect, Mm. that it doesn't feel like a barrier, but when you look back, there are Mm. things that could have been done that would have eased your path as a woman that a man oh, yeah. wouldn't have had to go through. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 There was plenty of it. Yeah. I think I could talk about this for a long, long time, but I'm going to move to our rapid fire questions. Mm-hmm. So the first of our rapid fire questions that we try to ask all our podcasters is, can you tell us which woman or women have been the biggest influence in your life? Well, so again, that's the story of my life. I thought nobody for quite many years, I was just lonely run- runner and I did what I want. But in fact, 
The biggest influence on me was my mum. She was my role model, I realised today. But as I said, it took me to about 2016 to realise that. And she was a physicist as well? Yeah. She was a physicist and uh, she instilled in me hunger for science, I suppose, Mm -hmm. and also showed me that you could do what you really love doing. And that it can be in any area of your choice. You know, physics wasn't really my very first choice when I was choosing my university studies. Under her influence, I probably didn't choose what I really wanted to choose. And for years, I used to tell her, you know, I do it only for you, which was ridiculous. I didn't do it for her at all but I need to mature and it took me a long time to realize. So she was a fantastic role model. And I think that a lot of it had to do with the fact that she was incredibly interested in science, positive, inquisitive, and I could see that she had a lot of fun with her science. She was a scientist herself. So, and I could see that she felt fulfilled and you know, I could ask her any question and she could answer. She could always answer. I can't answer all the questions, but she could. So she was a fantastic role model. And another role model was Lisa Meitner. Lisa Meitner was a Austrian-born physicist. She was of Jewish origin, and she then went on to have fantastic career in physics, in nuclear physics. She was the inventor or discoverer of uh, nuclear reactions, nuclear fusion, for which uh, her collaborator Otto Hahn got Nobel Prize, but she was omitted from the Nobel Prize. Which is unfortunately a common story. Yes, and that had a lot of, there were a lot of uh, circumstances which did that, but that's the story today that people know well and uh, realize that her omission was incredibly wrong. But she did fantastic uh, things in physics. And I looked at her life uh, and and thought that, you know, again, that was a woman who uh, had so many obstacles Mm. in her way, which didn't stop her from anything. She just went on and did her beautiful science all over the world and um, ended up back in... She was the first German professor of physics Hmm. ever in 1928 or something like that. I think it was 1928. She also represents for me a person who does really what they love doing and the other little things around them which make their life difficult, their lives difficult as sort of secondary stuff rather than... Yeah, I'm getting a really good sense of where your determination in life comes from. These sound like incredible role models. Mm. So when you think about today and you reflect back, say, 30 years ago, do you think women face different obstacles, the same obstacles, or is it harder, easier? What's sort of your perspective over time about the obstacles women face in science? So I think that it's a very sad story that we are confronted with because Normally, I'm incredibly optimistic about everything, but I think that as far as the role of women in the society is concerned, very little has changed in recent 
years. Do the women experience the same sort of difficulties? I think that they are slightly different now. And the awareness of the problem is much more in our minds now than it was before. We have podcasts about and it, for example. And we have podcasts. And not only that, we have women-only positions that mm. we advertise, which can be discussed whether it's a good or bad thing to do. But I think that it will take a long time still to get the position of women in science to be what it should have mm. been for a very long time. And I think that it is very important to have podcasts like this. It's also very important to lead the discussion about it and to have the training about unconscious bias and to have awareness built up around it, but also actions. Mm. So I think that it's incredibly important to have equity, diversity and inclusion committees and people actively involved in them, but not only to summarize the situation, but also to drive the change. And the change, you, you can ask, where does the change come from? Does it come from those committees or does it come from our homes, our cultures? Is it different in different cultures around the world? Is there a uniting point in it that we all can be working on? I think these are big questions, mm. and do I have a lot of answers? No. Maybe it's it's a bit too much for one podcast. We'll do it. We'll do all the answers over <laughs> two podcasts. Perhaps. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I guess finishing up, then, what piece of advice would you offer to the next generation? What one piece of advice would you offer to the next generation of women in science? Go for your dream. That's, I'm, I'm not even going to ask for any elaboration. I think that's the most beautiful way to end this episode. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, that's all for this episode of Women in Science. In our next episode, we chat to Professor Sandy Degnan, who is working to save the Great Barrier Reef from a thorny pest. This Women in Science podcast series is produced by Dr. Marlus Decker, Dr. Marina Fortes, Linda McDougall and Matt Taylor. Technical production is by Daniel Seed. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short and thanks for listening. <laughs>